Hey everybody out there in the podcast world, Chad Belding with another great episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bosch Drives down in Louisiana, the best boat motors made. We're proud to be associated with the company that's so innovative and uh, so all about the uh, lifestyle, the duck hunter, the goose hunter, getting us where the ducks want to be. Check them out. They just introduced the new 40 horsepower XP and uh, extreme performance, and I've ran it. Uh, we tested it, and I can't wait to get it in the woods of Arkansas, the Missouri River, the Mississippi River, the marshes of California, Butte Sink. It's going to be everywhere with us this year as we film season 11 of The Foul Life. And today's episode is also brought to you by our friends at Leupold Optics, the best optic, optics in America, in my opinion, built in America, 100% USA built company out of the awesome state of Oregon. Thank you to Bruce and everybody up there for their support of the foul life and everything that we're doing here at This Life Ain't For Everybody. We couldn't be more proud to be using Leupold Optics in our scouting and all of our rifle hunts. And everything that we do as far as spotting scopes, binoculars, range finders, and rifle scopes are needed. Um, I'm telling you guys, as a waterfowl hunter, there's nothing more important as you travel across the country and you're on those back roads of America looking for that honey hole, looking for that hidden spot that those mallards have found, but you haven't quite got on it yet. Binoculars are a necessity. A window-mounted spotting scope is almost a necessity. I'm not saying that you have to have it, but boy, it's nice to be able to pull up, have your heater on full blast, and roll down that window with that 15 or 20, 30-degree weather hit you in the face, but you you just got an awesome vision of what's going on far away, and it just gives you the ability to find a lot more spots to hunt, giving you... um you know, access, giving you that ability or opportunity to knock on a door and ask a farmer or his family for permission to hunt their field. Whatever the case might be, always have a pair of good optics. We choose Leupold because they work, they're built in America, and they support the hunter's lifestyle 100%. Again, thank you, Leupold Optics. Today, I'm uh, sitting here with a buddy of mine, Mr. Kirk Nesbitt, and Kirk's a, a, a general contractor, very successful in the construction world. Uh, his dad and himself have have, have been blessed to have a very successful business in the state of Nevada. And we'll talk a little bit today about business and, and the turn of the, the economy and how it's, it's really changed over the last, you know, the course of the last 18 months when we were going through hell for a while there, especially in our area, it seemed. But also Kirk's a dog trainer. And when you talk about dog training, everybody wants to know, you know, are you an amateur or are you a pro? And today I really want to get into what does that mean? And to me, if you're an amateur at something, you almost get the, uh, the, the, the thought or the ideology that you're not as good as a quote unquote pro. And as I've, uh, gotten more and more ingrained in the dog world, you, I've compared it to, you know, some people say, well, you're a pro hunter. Well, no, I mean, yes, we do get, we make a livelihood and a living in hunting in the outdoors. But as far as being like, you know, Chipper Jones or George Brett was a pro baseball player. That's a lot different than a high school baseball player or an amateur league, men's league softball or something like that, or even a fast pitch league. An amateur dog trainer is the same exact talent level in most cases. And the Kurt's going to educate us on this today, but I think that it means that you just don't make a living at it. You might be a very successful 
contractor, you might be an Uber driver to make your money, but on the side, you are a dog trainer, amateur, because you're not accepting money for it and you're not, you're not making a living doing it. But we're going to get into that. I want to learn more about that. What is the difference between an amateur dog trainer, whether it's in the hunt test or the field trial world, field trial world, and what, you know, what is the difference compared to a pro, pro trainer? Somebody like our buddy Brad Arrington at Mossy Pond Retrievers in Georgia in New York makes his living training dogs, housing dogs, kenneling dogs. And, and we're going to get into the differences of that. And it's going to be interesting to me because I'm going to learn a lot today. And I hope you guys do too. And Kirk, appreciate you being here, buddy. And are you, are you getting ready for a, a big time successful 2018-19 duck season? <laughs> we are. We've been... Uh getting everything ready to go been spending a lot of time out at the Camaspec duck club where i spend most of my time and uh working on blinds and yeah really excited chomping at the bit waiting for next month and Camaspec is you know we've our audience has been in, uh introduced to dave stanley who's the president of the Camaspec club uh no He's known as a fly fisherman, outdoorsman. You're friends with him. You know how passionate he is about the outdoors. The Canvas Pack is a private duck club that is located within the Stillwater Wildlife Management Area of Nevada, right? It's the Stillwater Refuge. Then there's a Stillwater Public Area. There's the Stillwater Mountain Range. And pretty much, if you if you picture it, you're driving across this desert of alkali sand and sagebrush. And then all of a sudden, you come over this mountain range of the Sierra or the the Stillwater Mountains, and there's an oasis there of of duck habitat, right? Absolutely, an oasis. It uh, the more time you get into it, the more you really get into the property and the land you you understand how much of an oasis it actually is on appearances it's very impressive but really getting out there and getting your feet on the ground tromping through the place it's unbelievable i have a lot of time out there and a lot of fun how long have you been a member out there not that long uh i've been hunting the uh, the valley and the greenhead hunting club which is 30 miles to the southwest uh, since I was a kid for, you know, 45 years. Um, but the canvas back, I've been out there for about five now. Getting very was your, was, was less, was your dad less a member before you? He was, he, uh, he and my mother joined out there probably about eight years ago now. And, um, after my mother passed away, I started spending more time with my father out there and fell in love with the place. And you, I mean, if correct me if I'm wrong, but you, got addicted to the place really fast to the point to where you like you you schedule the rest of your life besides your wife the rest of your life is scheduled around the canvas back duck club right <laughs> yeah if you ask my wife it would be also inclusive of scheduling around her as well i do spend a lot of time out there i really enjoy it it is much more than a place to kill ducks it's a it's a lifestyle out there it's a com camaraderie um I like it. I spend a lot of time working on blinds and do whatever I can to help out. Yes. So when somebody in the duck hunting world per se, you know, you think Arkansas, you think California, you think the Mississippi river, the Mississippi flyway, the Pacific flyway has some good duck hunting, um, that would probably be historically accounted towards the Sacramento Valley, the Sacramento Delta, the Butte sink, um, which holds a lot of the historic duck clubs for the Western United States, the rice country of California. They travel down that, that flyway from, you know, it's, I would say Western Alberta and then into British Columbia. And then you come down into Washington and Western Montana, and then you get down into Idaho and then you got Oregon on the other side. Then you got California, you got Nevada, 
And a lot of the ducks, the duck hunting is California for the Pacific Flyway. As far as the amount of duck hunters, the amount of harvest, kills, everything that goes into a full duck season. And then you start going the last eight, 10 years with the prices and the, in the, in the rates of ethanol and the growth of corn in our cropland and farming. And now you got Idaho and Oregon, West, uh, Eastern Oregon and the, and you know, the, the tri cities area of Washington and the, and, and the, the Columbia river basin. And that entire country now is full of ducks. Um, I'm not saying that it wasn't historically, but because the corn there, those ducks stay in those areas a lot longer. Now they have a lot more food. So my question to you is, does Nevada really have ducks? Because a lot of people that I encounter are like, how did you get into duck hunting being from Nevada? I mean, is that a fair question? I think it is on most cases because of what I just said about California and the, the we really don't have a lot of cropland here. We don't have a big river system here like the Columbia or the Snake. We have the Truckee River, which is not a duck factory. It's honestly not a duck factory. So are there really ducks in Nevada, Kirk? Oh, absolutely. Uh there are a lot of ducks here, not probably to the extent of some of the areas you've mentioned, um, but there are certainly more than enough for what we like to do, and we enjoyed a lot. And as far as Nevada not being known for a duck destination, you're spot on. My, as, we just, as you mentioned, and we'll talk about, I spent a lot of time in the field trial world traveling um, all over the country doing that, and that sport has a lot of duck hunters in it. And some of them have a lot of money and they're associated with some big time clubs all over the country. And they always ask me, well, Nevada, you know, you, you hunt ducks there. You, you know, conversational turn towards duck hunting and I'll talk about it with them. And they're, they were surprised that we had a spot to hunt ducks or that we even did any duck hunting to any degree because we're not the first thing that comes to your mind when you say big time duck hunting. I would also say that as a, a misnomer in, in the outdoor world that, you know, Nevada is known as Las Vegas. You, you, no. you say you're from Nevada. Everybody's like, Oh, you live in Vegas. I'm, uh, no. Yeah. And then they're like, you live in Reno. And I'm like, kinda, um, when you have the casino industry and then you have Lake Tahoe and our tourism built around the lake, which we often take for granted, but as you and I both know, is one of the coolest, most beautiful, you know, God blessed place on the face of the earth to be, to even drive up and see Lake Tahoe is amazing. And we, me, you and I probably don't do it enough because it is in our backyard and people tend to take things for granted when they're in their backyard. So <clears throat> in Nevada though, our hunting's awesome from a big game standpoint. The really, the only thing that you can't come to Nevada and have some, some sort of success on I would say as compared to the rest of the country would be turkeys. And where I'm going with that is that you can come here for, for a lot of species of big game. You can come here for predator hunting. You can come here for even the, the Himalayan snowcock that's up at 10,000 feet. Um, you can come here for some great fly fishing opportunities, great lake trout opportunities. Uh, we don't have a lot of bass waters here. We don't have a lot of walleye waters here, but we have some world-class destination fly fishing locations in the state of Nevada. When you hear the state of Nevada across the country, as much as you and I have traveled through duck hunting and, and training dogs and field trials, people really don't even understand unless they're really ingrained in a mule deer or an antelope or a bighorn sheep or a mountain goat or a rocky mountain elk a lot of people don't even think of nevada is somewhere to go to hunt at all would you would you agree with that is that is that because i know that you have experience in big game as well people don't look at nevada 
I'm not saying everybody, but when you get west or when you get east of Arizona, a lot of people don't consider Nevada a destination to hunt or fish anything. I would absolutely agree with that. And I have run into that as well in the travels. And unless you are one of the people that are big time into sheep hunting, or you're one of those guys that's really into elk and that's your passion, then you know, those guys know that Nevada is a spot um, for, you know, probably elk. If for, and, and mule deer, um, we have the desert, but there are places you go to get bigger sheep. But again, that's not my forte, so I could be talking incorrectly there. But the point, my experience has been, if, if people that do know of Nevada in a hunting destination, those would be more likely to be the cases. So certainly not waterfowl, but the big game, and particularly the people that are heavily involved in one particular species, if you if you think about what your experiences are in the state of Nevada, I'm going to say that 90 to 100 percent of your activity in the outdoor part of Nevada takes place down around the Canvas Pack Club. Whether it's duck season hunting or training your dogs, you seem to be down in that area a lot. Um, is it something to where you would trade right now? If I told you that hey, we can take the amount of money that you're spending on your adventures at Canvasback Club and we could go get an unbelievable place in Idaho or let's go find a camp in Arkansas that you're going to see way more ducks than you're seeing in Nevada. Because at the peak of Nevada, you might have 80,000 ducks on the refuge. Um, and, and then there's a lot of other factors that play into that with these nocturnal bastards feeding at night. You got the freeze outs. You got, you know, you just have a lot of unpredictable circumstances in, in that part of the country. Would you trade the the canvas back membership and your adventures out there with your kids with your friends with your family for another place in america to have more ducks to have more opportunities and not just opportunities for you and your shotgun but for obviously for what you're known for and your dogs to retrieve more ducks well the grass is always going to be greener someplace and um you know if you were to throw something out there that you know boy you can have whatever you wish list might be you know that would be hard to turn down but a big thing for me with Nevada, with the valley, the Carson Valley, the St. Lahan, Greenhead, Camasback, the history that's out there, and I'm very involved in, and I enjoy the history. And that part, you, you, I can go find some of the attributes that it has, but that's things that I can't bring with you, that you can't, I can't find that. There's obviously history at other places, but not history that I'm inundated with, that I'm part of, or my family's been part of. Um, that I've come up with. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that a lot of people and where I'm going with that, and I always say where I'm going with that, but that's exactly, I think the attitude that a duck hunter has to have. And you and I have talked on this before is that, yeah, I could, I could give up everything that I have rooted in this area and go, I'd love to go live in Nashville. I love the Nashville nightlife. I love the food. I love the people. There's a ton of outdoor opportunity and recreational opportunity around music city, USA. It's probably my favorite city in America to visit. And then when you start thinking like, all right, well, I'm going to move there. And then you uproot yourself from your roots. It's, it's, you're taking away all of that stuff that you're talking about as far as the the history of the place, your passion and love for the place, your connection emotionally and physically with the place, your family and everything. And, and in hunting, it's exactly the same thing that, yeah, we could probably go buy a place and afford to buy a place in the Butte Sink or somewhere where the ducks are known to be in a lot more abundance. But 
are you going to be able to take that left-hand turn on Stillwater Road? Are you going to get to look out across that desert and see those little buildings standing up with that little tiny satellite tower? And are you going to be able to turn left into the corrals and see that big green sign with the writing on it that says, welcome to Stillwater Farms? Are you going to be able to take a ride on Canvasback and then a ride on Spoonbill or uh, that and see the dog cemetery and see City Hall? Those are the things that mean way more than the squeeze of that trigger. Um, and I think that that's where you're going with that. And when you have a place like the canvas back and, and again, I've hunted there. I've been lucky enough to actually produce TV there with ducks unlimited, Justin Tackett, ducks unlimited, water dog, Dave Stanley, John David Stanley, his daughter, Katie. Um, now I don't get to hunt it nearly as much. I, I barely ever get to go there because I'm traveling so much. And then you're like, man, I haven't been to the canvas back forever. So what do I do? Summertime comes or springtime, actually spring before it's real warm. And I'm like, Dave, can we please go out to the club just so I can see it, just so I can smell it, just so I can eat a meal there. I put our boat in the water, drive around. And Dave's like, hell yeah, let's go. Uh, we do the green wing days out there. And when I'm out there, I'm just like, damn, I miss this place. And I think that if you did make a decision to leave there, that would be one of those things to where you would be, damn it, man. I made a mistake. I, I, no, I don't. I, there's no doubt I would have been making a mistake. I don't. I wouldn't make the mistake because I don't think I could bring myself to do it. Um, not just the, that, but the whole area. But in regards to that place, um, as we said, I've fell in love with the place, and I'm out there doing a lot of things, and I'm building projects out there myself. Things that I've gone out and built, um, and here and there, what that is. But the point being that my son's now getting involved in it, and um, what I would really like is that you know when my grandkids are out there, they can say grandpa built that worked, helped build that or worked on that. And I was just recently given um, a knife, a member out there uh, makes knives and he made the handle out of a fence post that had just recently been pulled when they pulled a fence that was installed a hundred years ago. So I have a knife made out of a fence post from a hundred years ago that was installed on the club. And that's kind of the stuff that's just gives me chills. Yeah, and I and I can see it when you're talking about it. And I think that <clears throat> just having that knife is 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 so cool. It's freaking cool to have a piece of something that you have so much passion in. And if you if you kind of look at that thing right there, um, the frame of, of that, my goal is to actually frame that in exactly what you're talking about. Some of the roofing material that's on the original lodge there at Prairie Wings, some of the tin, something mm -hmm. that comes off, even if it was like even if it was some of the timber, you know, that we, t that was taken out in a clearing or in a clear cut or something to where we could frame out that image right there of those mallards coming into that hole. Um, and then it just, and I could easily have you as a contractor come in here and, and frame that, but it'd be way more cool to have a knife or a frame made out of something that you have roots in, you know, invested in. And, and that's what I think that duck hunting is. That's why it's so traditional. I use my daddy's shotgun, got my daddy's truck. Um, I get emotional talking about that kind of stuff because <clears throat> I've lost my dad when we had when we grew up in the in the hills and the woods with in the mountains with my dad. Um, those kind of things become even that more important, and the sentimental value of the hunt, of the experience, is what we're chasing, and all of that leads into probably the most important part in a duck hunter's world um, as you mature into it or even when you get, first get into it growing up 
before you're even a duck hunter, probably dogs play an important role in our life. And as a duck hunter, you really learn the importance of a dog as a quote unquote tool or an asset and a companion. And I want to talk today a little bit about this, those things about when you have a high powered, and I'm not saying sporadic dog, I'm just talking a, a dog that you've put a lot of time in, a lot of training in, a lot of investment in, a lot of care and nurturing and love and everything that goes into it, that dog's still a tool. And I want to talk about that in a way that, yes, we do love the dogs. We are, we've been attached to these dogs. They mean so much to the hunt. But at the end of the day, it's just like a shotgun, and, and I know it's got a heartbeat, and I know it's got a personality, and I know it sleeps at the end of your bed and rides in the cab of your truck. Okay, I get all that, and I'm attached to them. I love them. We wouldn't hunt without them, but I want to talk today a little bit, and I want to start it off by the ethics of a dog, of having a dog. Um, what is a well-trained dog? Is there a right way to have your dog in the duck blind? Is it frustrating to, to be around a dog that's not suitable for the duck blind? And we're not going to name names. We're not going to say, we're not going to pass opinions. I just have a, a lot of, a lot of thoughts and questions of, you know, answer me that right now is a dog, no matter if he's a pet and spends a three days a week with your son and daughter, is he still a tool once you're in that duck blind? Well, uh, yes and no, obviously very big yes and no to both of those. It's a um, two pronged approach just like your gun is a, a tool, but you don't bring a gun that you don't like. You don't hunt with a gun you don't like and you can't hit things with. You have a hunting partner because your dog is a tool and a hunting partner both. So he's similar to a gun and your hunting partner. So you don't hunt with somebody that you don't like, not more than once or twice usually. So if you want to continue to hunt with somebody, you find that person you click with when you hunt, you want that in your dog. You want to have the same ethics, the same got mindset, when you go forward, and again, as on the tool part of it, it has to be functional. It doesn't do any good when your gun's jamming all the time when you're hunting um, and malfunctioning and breaking. So in that aspect, you want a dog that does what it's supposed to do and is enjoyable to be around. And um, if it doesn't do that, it doesn't mean that you, it's no good and you get rid of it because your pro wife probably won't let you anyway. But if, if your tool's not working right, you find the right tool. So you're saying that there is a right way to there, there there is a right way for a dog to perform in a duck blind from the way from the very beginning of the hunt to the to the retrieve to the the bringing the duck back or bringing the goose back there is there a right is there a level of expectation that a duck hunter should have with a dog or is it okay to just have a dog that's somewhat trained? Is it to each their own with a dog or a you as a dog trainer that's been around the best of the best, the cream, of the, I'm talking derby list. I'm talking qualified all ages. I'm talking about master hunters. You can name it. You've done it. Is there a right way for a dog to be in a duck blind or is it to each their own? Is that duck hunter? I think it's to each their own. Um, but doesn't mean I want to hunt with that person. Um, because I, I have no right to tell somebody that their dog's no good and he shouldn't be hunting. Nobody does. If that person loves that dog and wants to take that dog hunting and he's worthless, you know, just don't hunt with him. Uh, but that's his prerogative. Uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's you, the duck calling thing. You might have somebody out there that's horrible at duck calling, but if he enjoys duck calling, 
That's his prerogative to go suck at duck calling in the blind. And if he wants to deal with a dog that's unruly and not, you know, spending more time chasing your dog than the birds after you've made a shot, if you're chasing your dog around the decoys because you've missed and he's running around the decoys, you're just limiting your next opportunity to, to have another shot. And you're limiting your time of it, uh, on the hunt, especially quality, fun. Most of the time, those guys just end up mad. And so I think there is a right way. And the right way is to have a dog that's obedient, that listens to you, um, that you do not nag. That's the big thing you and I've talked about a lot. It's... The dog might be a good dog, but I get tired of listening to the, the owner nag the dog. You know, tell the dog, dog should do what he's told and, and be done with it. And so for me, not only do I want the dog to behave, I want the owner to make the dog behave and not listen to him nagging at the dog all the time. It's not enjoyable for the dog or for the person they're hunting with. So yes, there is a right way and a wrong way. And um, depending upon the, your level of expectation, that bar can continue to be raised to the point that perfection which is unobtainable but you if you strive for that you end up somewhere better than when you shoot for a c you get an a <laughs> and it, it sounds to me like there might be a lot of cases of operator error not with the computer or not with the tv remote control you know you're blaming it on the remote and then your brother picks it up and goes you're a dipshit here it's, here's what you need to do with a dog you're sitting there going god this is the worst dog in the world but really it was the owner's responsibility to make sure that that dog had every opportunity to be successful before he put him in that position to fail or succeed, correct? Is that fair to say? <laughs> that is absolutely fair. It's 100% about that. Um, operator errors to not imply that you did one thing wrong in the course of a hunt. If the dog's not doing something when you're out there hunting, it's not because of you said a name wrong or you gave an incorrect cast or command that that might infer operator error operator error takes place over many hours and days and months and years you train the dog to be untrained um through operator error you must and even if you have a dog that comes from a trainer and and we talked about this a little bit you a guy might have a dog you go hunting with this guy he says i just got my dog back he just got done you know, a year down at Joe Blow's and boy, he's, you know, here we go. And you get out there and the dog's walking around in the decoys and farting around and looking at butterflies and, and well, that's not the owner's fault. It's not the trainer's fault. It's not the dog's fault. It's the parents of the dog's fault. You know, I mean, the dog's only got what the dog's got in it. And if he does, he likes butterflies better than birds. Not much you can do about that. So that's that's the dog. Now, if the dog comes out and, and is not looking at butterflies, he's birdie as heck. He's got all the attributes, the natural attributes that you'd want your dog to have, but he's running amok, crazy. Now you can point the figure at one, the trainer, or two, the handler. And most times it's probably the dog was trained to some decent, respectable level, and the owner didn't take the time to follow up and learn how to run the machinery that he was given. And then he starts producing operator error. And you make one error the first time you have the dog. That's not a problem. It's when you make it again and again and again. Now you've developed a team because you guys are going to be a team. And if you start off with a dog that does know something and you don't, your only place you're going to end up is where you are. The dog's going to know more than you, but he's going to adapt right with you. And that's what you're going to end up with. And do you have... The ability 
as a potential dog owner, I want to know how you pick a puppy. How do you, is it all word of mouth or can, is there, is there laws to abide, not laws, but is there some guidelines to abide by in, in picking a puppy? Do you look at their feet? Do you look at their head? Do you pick a boy? Do you pick a girl? Do you pick a chocolate lab, a black lab or a yellow lab? You got to look at all take in layman's terms. I want, I'm a duck hunter and I want a dog. What, what do I do? Well, most of the um, benchmarks that people look at first are pedigrees. And uh, usually those pedigrees are determined by the field trial side of things, meaning their titles. Whenever you hear people talking about that, they always talk about this NFC, AFC, he's a field champion, he's a this or he's that. Um, there's NFC, AFC, a um, FC, those are field trial titles. Then you have master hunter, senior hunter, junior hunter. Those are the hunt test titles. Qualified all ages, a new, um, relatively new field trial title that's um, it's QA. Uh, and that's, that's another. So anyway, you look, at, you look for those. And usually, they, everybody starts off with looking for those FCs, the Fs and Ns and As at the beginning of the name. And then they go from there. And that's where you kind of start. And usually, you're probably not going to be seeing those kinds of parents directly as a parent of the puppy you're looking at, unless you're looking at a $5,000 puppy. Most people are going to be looking at somewhere a little bit um, lower than that. And that's where you should be looking because you don't need that kind of firepower in the blind and try to control it. Um, so that's where you start. And then you just, then you look at productivity. Uh, what have the parents done? What were their attributes like? Were they a hot rod? Were they a little bit low key? Um, and you find a parent that have the attributes that fit the type of dog you'd like to have. And then you move that direction and you continue to do those things and do your homework, talk to people that had some litter mates. The best thing you can find is if you can find a repeat breeding, then you know what the other people got and how those dogs turned out and whether they fit what you're looking for or not. If you can find a repeat breeding, that gives you a very good indication of where to go. And uh, that's where you start. And then, and then there we can go on about where you go from there as far as the training. But after you've picked your breeding, at that point, man, um, you know, if you like a blocky head, get a blocky head. You can go look at your puppies and you can throw clip wings or you can throw a pigeon wing for them. And boy, one day that little guy with the blue collar, the red collar, he's the hot rod. Man, he's awesome. You go there the next day and he's sleeping. And pink collar's the hot rod. And, uh, and if you're familiar with usually they put different colors of collars on puppies so that you can track how they're doing um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and it's just that they're puppies. You know, I mean, that guy woke up and felt good and had, had a good nap, and so he was a hot rod. So anyway, if you're going to really get into that to pick a puppy, you need to spend a lot of time with the litter. Um, more times than not, for me, this is just me. I've had it as much as luck just reaching in and grabbing one. Um, after I've determined the litter that I want. Um, I've narrowed it down to that litter. When I, when I say just grabbing one, I've narrowed it down to two or three um, based off of continual performances. And after that, then it's luck of the draw between this one or that one or, you know. I've recently have one that's out of a litter of eight, three turned out pretty good. And uh, I happen to have picked one of the three good ones, and uh, that was just luck of the draw. Absolute luck of the draw. Could have been one of the other ones, and just, you never know.
You have a guy that comes and says, I want a dog. And he goes into the local paper and black labs, 500 bucks. Uh, don't have the paperwork, don't know the pedigree, but this guy doesn't care because he just wants a dog for his hunting. He's got $500 saved up. That's his budget for it. You're not saying that that dog can't turn into something special. You have no idea, right? But that's probably not the smart way to buy a dog. If you are going to spend $500, you know, these puppies go for a lot more than that. But if you're going to spend two, three, four, five hundred dollars on a dog, the smart way to do is what you're saying is get the pedigree, get the bloodlines, find find what their parents, their grandparents, what titles they had. Um, are titles the most important thing, or eyes, hips? Are you looking at all of that when you look at a bloodline and a pedigree of a dog before you say? Yes, I am interested in buying one out of this litter. And then you can go to the next step, which is, well, I don't get the pick of the litter, which I want to talk about in a little bit, what that means to, you know, have the pick of the litter or you have the bitch or you have the sire. Is that is that everything that you do before you even go to the next step of saying, all right, uh, I want to pick the one with the pink collar or the red collar? Well, going to a paper is fine. Um, it, you stand a much greater risk of getting that one that likes to watch butterflies. Uh, now, with that being said, you know, if you have a buddy that's in a small town and you know his dog's a really good duck dog, and just through the course of being out there grinding away at it, that dog knows his stuff without any formal training. That happens all the time. Uh, they're natural dogs and they have a lot, of, um, a lot of good experiences and they become great dogs. That guy breeds his dog to Bob's, you know, yellow down the street. You know, you, you know, you've got history. Again, it's not a repeat breeding, but you know the history of it. And so then you might be inclined to do that. As far as the um, dog holding up with hips and eyes and those sort of things, when you get into the other breedings, the upper breedings, those things are going to have been tested and clarified. Uh, the, upper, the upper caliber breedings, you don't run into that as much. If you go get Bob that, you know, his dog's a really good duck dog and he's breeding it to that guy down the street, you're more inclined to get, A, again, the, the butterfly watcher, or if, again, if you know it's a great duck dog, you don't know if he's, his parents broke down when they were two, if their eyes went bad, they went deaf, their hips went out. Those are things you just don't know. I was personally was given um, a fellow in the town by the name of Mike Falstich, um, loves to hunt ducks, and I was given the top breeding in the country one year. It's like $5,000 puppy in 95. Um, and I was given the dog um, because it had an overbite and was going to be dysplastic. And rather, this guy who had too much pride to send it back um, because he, you know, suppose everybody had too much money to bother with that trivial sort of thing. He gave me this dog, and the, Mike Falstage put the money into the dog to fix it. And the dog was a tremendous duck dog, just all natural ability, but. He broke down. He he was it cost that free dog cost him eight or ten thousand dollars to repair physically, but it became a great dog for him. And he, when you say repair physically, that means operation under the knife, everything. Yeah, he had to have the hips done. He didn't do anything with the mouth, the the underbite. Um, That just makes him kind of not appearance wise, but yeah, his hips. You know, he had to go in and work on hips and that sort of thing. And I think maybe some elbows. But anyway, um, so. 
that was a bit before they really started getting into a lot of the testing and screening and things that they that they do now. Uh, display shit was always a thing. They always had those dogs tested for that. Um, but the science of it has gotten quite a bit quite a bit better these days. But anyway, again, the the upper breedings you tend to those tests are done. The 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 guy in the paper for five hundred bucks. Odds are they've not done any testing on the physical attributes. So probably not a good investment. Or if you're just looking for a run-of-the-mill dog to go in the backyard and train yourself and go out and, hey, you might have to pick up a rock and throw it towards where the duck fell. But if that dog's got retrieving in his blood, he's probably going to go get that. It's just not going to be something that is going to get the job done like a well-trained dog would. Where I'm going with that is, can you have a field champion or a field trial champion if none of the tests are done? If you just go into something blind and, and buy a dog like that, that stuff's not happening, right? These guys that are buying these dogs and having these champions and these bloodlines that are producing these litters that have the top dogs in the country, these dogs are proven. They're tested. They're, they have generations of, and generations of bloodline that is successful is it crazy for a duck hunter to go into the paper and buy that dog or should he save a little bit more money and get a quality, quality dog out of a kennel or out of a breed breeding? Well, it's like anything. Um, there's going to be stories. I can tell you one personally where I, I got a dog. One of my first ones, the first field champion I ever made was a $175 um, reject from Ducks Unlimited. And one of the best dogs that I had, um, she was born in 1990, I remember May 5th, I remember my first dog, she was a good dog. $175 for that dog, and in the course of my time involved in the dog world, I had been on some big time lists and, and five, $7,000 puppies with multiple national champions as parents um, that were no good. They washed out immediately so yeah here's one where i've got the top breeding that you can get around the country one year and then i've got 175 dollars ducks unlimited reject that becomes a field champion that's lightning striking that does not happen it, i mean it does but don't bet on it so you're not crazy to go get that out of the litter out of the newspaper but be prepared the odds are not in your favor for giant success depending upon your expectations they're not ready. As long as you're willing to, because most times when somebody goes and gets that dog, when they, by the time they determine that dog is not going to work for what they want, they don't have the option to get rid of the dog and send it down the road to a good home because mom loves it. Their kids love it. They're stuck with that dog for 10 years that's chasing butterflies when they're out hunting ducks. So if you, you can do it and the chances are going to be fine that you'll get along and, and get what you get by with whatever it does for you. But if you're looking for uh, the next step, really, you know, not having to worry about, you know, oh, it's, it's, it just blows bubbles when it swims around and doesn't, and, but I got to deal with it. And sometimes it finds a duck. If you're okay with it, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's wrong at all. You know, to each its own. So I, just tell me the steps. The steps. I, the ste I want to know the steps. If I am a, a father or a mother and I'm getting into duck hunting and I have a kid that's really fired up about it. It's got his first duck call. Next step is a dog. What are the steps? I don't, you know, if, if, if I, I personally wanted a dog, okay. I went 
through connections in the industry. I had connections. I had a network of people that I could rely on that knew way more about dogs and dog pedigrees and dog training and field tests and field trials and hunt tests. And it led me to Brad Arrington. Mm -hmm. My relationships through hunting led me to your dad. Mm -hmm. Your dad's relationship with myself led me to you. My relationship with you led me to a new dog named Duff that we'll talk about. (laughs) What if somebody doesn't have the connections or the network to do that, to get the advice that that advice is worth a ton of money? Well, Chad, I know this breeder. I know the the dad. I've hunted with the dad. I hunted with Craig, this guy that owns the dad. This lady's known for having awesome, uh, you know, litters you should probably go look at this litter that's going to hit the ground May 5th. I'm getting all of those details given to me like this, just mm-hmm. clockwork. I'm very lucky and fortunate and blessed to have that. But what about the person that has none of that? Kirk, what do I do to get a dog that's going to be worth a you-know-what yeah. for me for, for several years? Well, there's two avenues that we should discuss, and one that you and I have never discussed. Um, one would be the puppy situation, and we'll get into that because I know that's really where you're going. The other one that's an option, and I promote this a lot, especially for somebody that has kids. Um, you do, you go out and you find that kennel and you there, you can find them. Just do a little research on the internet, you'll find them. But get what you'd refer to as a started dog. Uh, you find a dog that's maybe one or two years old, depending upon what avenue he was being trained for, hunt tests or field trials. Those people are looking for a certain caliber of dog. And when they get one and it's not reaching the potential that or the successes that they would like to see it reach, they sell it as a gun dog. And so you can go out and you can spend five, six thousand dollars on a dog that you get a test drive. You get to take it and you get to go see how it works for you. If you like its personality, if you like what it does. The biggest thing is that <laughs> You, when you take it home to your children and they, you see how it works, and a lot of times you can make arrangements with these kennels to take it with the understanding that you broke it, you buy it, it gets run over, you're buying it, but you have to negotiate that where you can take it and, and test drive it. And if it doesn't work for you, your kids are only into it for a week or two weeks, and now you know this dog doesn't work. If you buy a puppy, it's going to take you two years, and if you put it with a trainer, you're going to be at the same amount of money at that point in time or close to it because you're going to have spent say a thousand on the puppy some training and now you find out at two years old your dog's no good it's, it's not what you want but your kids are attached to it and you're stuck so that's an avenue that i think is a very good avenue especially for somebody that doesn't want to take the risk of raising a puppy and having the you know not working out you're probably not going to find a starter dog in the paper though no, you're, no. you're saying that you're going to have to do some research you're going to have to find a kennel and you're going to have to call these kennels and you're going to say hey was just inquiring I, i've heard that there's this thing out there called a starter dog do you happen to have any leads on one of these and that kennel might go well actually yeah we do we have a year and a half old 18 month old black lab named harry that you know we've been training him he's 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 ready to go he's ready to be in the blind is that what a starter dog is absolutely and <clears throat> most kennels these days um have their website and they'll have a page of started dogs, a a description, a picture, uh, where they're at in their training. And you can go in and you can look at them and you want a big blocky headed chocolate. You know, you find it. It's like looking for a used car. You know, Uh, you you find what, if you like the way it looks, then you can go see if it fits what you want it to do. Um, And you go shopping. And and there's a lot of, you don't have to buy from within your area. 
the internet's going to allow you to, now it's not going to allow you to take it home if you, you know, you buy one from Connecticut, but they're all over the place. They're, they're very uh, common to, to find. They're not hard to find. So yes, that's what a started dog is, is uh, somebody that's got some, some uh, young dogs at all different levels of training, all different price range, all different pedigrees and all different um, looks and uh, colors. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a neat avenue, but most people don't want to do that. And I understand that most people want to get a puppy, raise it, bond with it and do the whole thing. That's, I understand that completely. So that's the most common route. So back to your question would be, um, you still have to, you still have to do some homework. Um, you might not know anybody that has those connections, but you need to find somebody. And again, you just, you start with a kennel, go to a kennel, find a, um, an event if possible somewhere in your area and go watch and visit a hunt test, a field trial, um, any sort of a field event with dogs. And that's a place to start. Um, you're not going to find them walking in circles in your backyard. So you're going to have to go take a step out and make a make an effort to, to get into that world. It's, it's not hard, you don't have to get immersed in the world at all, but you need to start someplace. Most of the time, people are extremely helpful and, and more than happy to take somebody that's new and, and guide them along and get them going in the right direction. So if you can just get your toe into an event and you'll meet somebody and now you've got a connection, maybe not the connection, but it's more than you had yesterday. And you go from there. and. Do your research, do your homework, um, read about, just, just read about, not just don't read the training books. You're looking for a dog right now, so you wanna find the things I talked about. You, you need to find the avenue to even start looking for the breeding, so start looking for, so you've gotta go out and find that event and find that person. Now you're going down the right road. Then you can start, then you'll be able to get the information about the pedigrees and the bloodline and the, and the, and the repeat breedings and those types of things that will come but that would be my best <coughs> advice was to reach out and find an event in some capacity akc has their website um has it uh, all kinds of events listed on there um field trial news is online they have stuff like that uh, working retriever central has the, their website many places and all of them have links to other sites in regards to that so start with that and find events within your your area and go visit one and watch. It's very impressive. It's interesting. I, I agree a hundred percent. And when, when you're on that side of it and you see it, it, it just turns you on in so many ways to see what these dogs can actually do and how important they are to the success of a hunt. And without jumping ahead too far, I want to stay on the, the, the topics that you're talking about, some of the things that I, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I'm just saying spitballing here about maybe some other ideas for a newcomer to, to, um, waterfowling or the dog world coming into it. Maybe, um, is there a recommended trainer guide out there? Could, could I go without knowing you or Brad Arrington, could I go and say, all right, well, this is the American Kennel Club, the AKC. They have on their website, a list of trainers that they recommend, you know, like you can go onto these websites now that, Hey, these contractors in your area have a five-star rating. Um, is that fair in the dog training world that you can go on and just take somebody's recommendation through, through that? Like, can they just be, can they just be Yes, this we recommend these seven trainers, or are, are those trainers paying for them to say that? Is there a, a, a way that you can find a trainer to call and say, "Hey, 
I was given your name. I'm very interested in using your services, but before I hire you to train my dog, I need you to find me a dog. And then that trainer can say, okay, well, if you're really interested in using my services, here's what I've produced over the last 10 years. Maybe you get a resume from them or a portfolio of saying, I've done this with this many dogs. I've ran this many hunt tests, this many field trials. I've been to this many Mark, Mike Lardy schools. I've ran this da, 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 da. And then they say, I do have a, a, a litter dropping here, or I have this starter dog that I can get you. Is that a fair way to try to find a puppy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, the websites that I'm referring to, all of them are going to have links that are paid advertisements, like any place, of trainers and videos and books. There, but there's forums you can get on and you can talk to other people. And, and they're very interesting because a lot of times those forums are a lot of people that are relatively new and they're jacked up. I mean, they're really excited about where they're going. They're just kind of getting into it. So they're immersing themselves in all kinds of information and they get online and they talk back and forth with each other and that you can get a lot of information if you get in one of those. Um, but again, those websites have those links. Um, every place I've gone, Mike Lardy, uh, he, I, I, I knew Mike, no, no, Mike was I, was I name dropping right there? You, you, that's all right. I was going to bring it up. <laughs> I was going to bring it up because he, um, he revolutionized dog training to some degree from the standpoint of, he helped make it a business and all dog trainers. Um, and my experience is primarily with field trial side of it. When I was doing it, the hunt test was kind of coming up and becoming strong. So I don't have a lot of experience with that in the, in professionals, professionals in the field trial world, their dog trucks would come up and down strong, go weak up and down all the time. Mike was like everybody else. He got a good, strong truck. Mike never let his truck go weak. He was able to make a business out of what was more of a lifestyle. Dog training was kind of a ranching type of a thing. You, you was a way of life. And um, you usually made your money when you sold your property at Walmart after when you were done training. Anyway, Mike, Mike's the one that, that made it into a business. And he did that by making some very good videos. And those videos still stand the test of time today. They're, they're well done. They're, they're, they talk about fairness uh, to the dog. So everybody knows Mike Lardy. That name is synonymous. Anywhere I go, if I'm talking to anybody about dog, they'll say, dude, you know Mike, or did, you know, doesn't matter what level of dog knowledge they have, they know about Mike Lardy. Um, you know, it's like, you might not watch basketball, you know who Michael Jordan was, and I'm not trying to compare him to that level, but he, um, he, he is a household name almost in the dog. Anybody that knows, has any idea about some dog training, they've heard of Mike Lardy. And he's the one that started the videos. And there are a lot of them out there now. So find those. Um, there's probably hundreds of videos that I'm not aware of that are going to be fine. But if you start with the website and you get on a forum, that's going to be a good place to get some avenues for, for um, trainers. And, and, and just call up. Uh, call somebody local in your area, talk to them, get a feel for it, talk to some people, get some record, who, who's training with them, get some name from them. Um, you know, you don't want to just run out and buy something without doing some research on it. And I would research the, the kennel because you definitely want to research kennels just because you throw a shield, uh, uh, you know, your, uh, your um, what am I trying to say, your shingle up doesn't mean you're any good at it. It just means you're, you got a shingle up. So make sure you do some checking on what kennel you're talking to 
and the trainer you're talking to. It's not hard. You're going to so, find out. The, 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 the bottom line is, is that there is help out there. It's, it, it's not like you're looking for a girlfriend and you go on Tinder and you see a girl that her picture's there and you're like, Oh, I swipe right or whatever these guys are doing on these dating sites now. And no, I'm not on Tinder and I'm not trying to promote anything. I'm just saying you have no idea about that person just because there's a few words written about her or him on these dating sites. You, you really got to um, invest your time before you invest your money. I, my advice, and, and I think you'll agree is take some time before you make a decision. It's almost, it's, it's more important than buying a car. The car is important because you want a safe car with, with the things that's it's going to last a while. It's not going to be a gas hog. It's going to have a great safety system and, and, and collision control and all that stuff. I get that. But the same ideology in going to a dog is don't make an impulse buy just because he's cute or she's cute. Um, there's a lot of different thoughts into this. I'm not saying that going to a kennel or a, or a pound, the dog pound and adopting a dog through the humane society is not a good thing to do, but we're talking about a totally separate thing here with hunting dogs and sporting dogs. I know that there's a whole other pet world out there and that's not what we're talking about today. There is help out there. There is people that will lend a hand and get you. That's not going to pull the wool over your eyes that want you to have a good dog. These dogs aren't being bred to, to come out and be terrible. These breeders really want to have something. And that's why the paperwork, the pedigree, the kennels, the, 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 the litters are so important, right? Kirk, it's not about just going in and saying, Oh, this dog ran into this yard and made it because she was in heat and they had this litter. That doesn't mean that you have to buy that puppy just because you feel sorry that that owner has a bunch of puppies laying there, right? Oh, no, no, not at all. You know, you can go to the supermarket, get one out of the box in the front. Um, no, the, um, if I'm a guy and I know, I, I know nothing about anything and I just, I want to get into the dog world, I would approach it the same way I would try to approach anything else that I'm not familiar with, but I want to become familiarized myself with. I would just get online and type in dog training, type in dog, type in retrievers, type in whatever and see, start, start seeing what's popping up. And you're going to get a menagerie of things like anything else that you're going to try to pursue or, or um, you know, get it, find information on. Start narrowing it down, but you got to start there. You got to start someplace. And like I said, you're not walking around in your backyard. You're not getting anywhere. Go on the internet. You're a step closer. Gets a few sites. Call somebody. Now you're getting closer. You're not there, but you're more informed than you were 10 minutes ago. So you keep pursuing those things. The more information you pursue is going to lead you to this contact and that's going to lead you to that contact. You may not have any contacts today and the people that you're talking about that are at your fingertips, but they will, you know, you've got to do something to get them. So you just start moving forward with it and make those calls and do that research. And those chat rooms that I'm talking about, looking back on it, um, I mean, some of it's kind of, um, it's, it's interesting to, to look at, but if you look at it from the context of what's really being discussed, it's a bunch of new people that are fired up about something that are talking about what they've learned. And boy, what a great place to, to gather information from, because those guys are fired up like you are about learning these things. And that's gonna, they're, they're gonna put out a name and you're gonna chase that name down. And maybe you talk to that guy and that's gonna lead to this name. Eventually you're gonna, you're gonna to start to have more information than you did before you started. And that's the whole thing. And it just depends on how much time and effort you wanna put into it to find that, that level of um, understanding you have before you pick a dog. But it's fair to say that you're gonna be better off if you take the time to invest in an information gathering process before you 
write the check to whether it's a private breeder, a kennel, your buddy, anything. You want to make sure you do your due diligence before you spend amount of money on a dog, whether it's a retriever or a Labrador, a golden retriever, Labrador, whatever species it is, whatever breeding it is, you want to make sure that that dog is going to at least be able to be trainable, comes from some bloodlines that have had experience, that have it in their blood to be a, a, a sporting dog. Absolutely. That is absolutely right. If you have enough money to just go buy a vehicle without putting the time and researching what that vehicle is, and you have the time, in the, or you have the money to do that, you can write a check for it. You can do the same thing with a dog. The difference with the dog is there's an attachment that comes all of, with that all of a sudden. You know, you, it's not an it's not an inanimate, inanimate object. So if somebody does have enough money, they can just throw around willy nilly. You're talking about a living, breathing thing that you're interacting with. So you've got to, you've got to understand and appreciate that. So it's not fair to the dog to just buy something and then find out because you have the money to buy it and then just disregard it because it doesn't fit your criteria. It's your job to find the right animal ahead of time and do every your due diligence, not just, just to save you money, but to do right by you, your family, and the animal. So you get the right animal in the right situation. Everybody's successful moving forward. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I think that we've covered that there is a process. There is help out there. There is ways to find a good dog, a good puppy, good pedigree, good bloodlines. There's a way to do it. You just got to be committed to it before you make a, this decision. This is a very important decision in a duck hunter or a pet owner's life. In my opinion, it's a very important decision because it can mean a dog that can run a blind at 800 yards on some whistle commands and hand signals or a dog that goes out there and you got to have a pile of rocks sit next to you in the blind. Or if you don't have rocks and then what's the next thing you throw, you got to throw full shotgun shells that cost about $2 and 25 cents a piece now, right? Oh, there, absolutely. There are avenues. Bottom line is there are avenues. Do your due diligence, find out, get as much information as you can, make an informed decision before you purchase that dog. And, and the rock thing, I've heard something funny recently. A, a, a trainer was um, with some young dogs, and one of the other guys threw a rock across the pond to get the dog over there. And he says, that's a good dog. That's, he's a two-rock dog. I said, what do you mean two? He said, it only took two rocks to get him over there. My, my dog's a four-rock dog. You know, <laughs> as a joke. It was, making, it, was a, it was a humorous thing, but yes. It, I've seen it, and yeah. I've done it. I've done Everybody it. has. Everybody. And, and it just makes you appreciate being around George Brett or Barry Bonds as opposed to the Bad News Bears. And, and, and I'm not saying that your dog's bad. And I'm not saying that my dog's the best. I'm just saying that there is a process. There's help out there. Yes. Let's use that. So uh, it's, that's, it's, it's available. Don't you'd be foolish to, to not access it and to, and to pass up an opportunity when it's so easy with the internet the way it is. Everybody that's trying to make a living at this, good and bad, is out there on the internet like everything. And find the good ones and pursue it and find somebody that will help be helpful. Guarantee you there's people out there that are helpful. They'd be more than happy to, to, to help you go in the right direction. Just got to find it. I'm going to make some statements that I hear in the duck blind, statements that I've read, statements that I've probably come up with my own opinions on because of my experiences. Uh, number one, Mr. Kirk Nesbitt, is there's no such thing as a good chocolate lab. 
<laughs> is this true or false? And, 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 and I want to know, I know you've heard this and I know you've, I, I don't know for a fact, I, we've never had this discussion. I've heard this. Is it true? Is there a good, is there a good, a such thing as a good chocolate lab? Have you been around one? Have you trained one? Have you sent one on a mark and he's come back with the duck the way he's supposed to? Have you seen some at field trials that are just 100% bona fide badasses or are they few and far between? Why does the chocolate lab in, in the duck hunting world, and I, maybe I'm speaking out of term here, but t- I've heard several times t- enough to make formulate my opinion of they have a bad rap in the duck hunting world. Is that true or am I off base? No, no you're not off base at all. That is, a, that is a stereotype that's out there, and it is a stereotype. Um, but like everything, it is based in some truth, and that comes with, let me back up. There, there was a chocolate lab that I believe it was Mike Lardy who won the national championship with the biggest of the big, the biggest one you can win. He won it with a chocolate a few years back, been a few years now, but so it's been done. Um, and so, yeah, there are badass chocolates. Now, why are there not very many? Um, you're talking about gene pools. Um, you're talking about the percentage uh, that the odds that you might get your hands on a good one. And when you only breed a certain level, a number of dogs, you're only going to get a certain number of puppies. And when the, the pool that you're pulling from to start with is not strong, there are strong ones, but you're, there's just not a, there's not a lot of options. You don't have a lot of choices in, in, in real solid. You're not going to get 20 chocolates all in a, in, in a, in a bloodline. They're all badasses because there's not a giant gene pool to pull from. So, so it, 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 would it be fair to say, and I'm, I'm speaking in layman's terms here, there's really not a history of several good bloodlines of chocolate labs in our country. There probably are. And I'm, I'm not, nor have I ever been really heavily involved in breeding. Um, I follow bloodlines, uh, to, to, but I follow blacks. Um, I had not followed the chocolates. I know there are good chocolates, but it's like everything else. Irish setters used to be a great hunting dog. You know, they got, it got bred out. And chocolates are not bred out. I'm not saying that. But if, if, they're, if a dog line is um, more inclined to be favorable for a certain type of a um, situation, if it's more favorable to, to have your dog named Coco chasing your um, tennis ball in the backyard, then those attributes are what are there that that's what's bred and so the real badass chocolates that, that do occur they're just um they 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 want to breed them and they do it's just there it's i know i couldn't exact i don't know why exactly other than to it's just not a giant gene pool there are our bloodlines of chocolates i don't want to there's somebody out there that knows a lot more about chocolate bloodlines than me that's probably pulling their hair out right now because i i don't know specifically about chocolate bloodlines my opinion is that the gene pool is not as great to pull from as there are some of the other breedings that really have just giant gene pools of multiple good lines of dogs. I think that that was well said. I think it's fair to say that, I, I don't know if that's the right words. I think that we're, that we're onto something and I'd like to learn more about that just because I don't want to pass judgment on a certain, I haven't been around many good ones, but here's the reason why. I haven't been around that many of them. I'm mainly around black labs, occasionally a, a, a yellow lab, 
Um, I have nothing against any of them except for the fact that I caught myself starting to formulate this opinion of chocolates because it seems like every good dog I've ever been around was almost always black lab, occasionally yellow lab. And again, I'm not saying that yellow labs and black labs and chocolate labs aren't equal. I just have through my travels haven't seen a lot of good chocolate labs, but in, in, in defense of them, I haven't been around that many. So if I not been around that many because people don't want them because they're not there, there's no such thing. That's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of due diligence again, that needs to be done on that. Well, I would say, um, <laughs> for me, I didn't, when I was really competing, I didn't care if the dog was pink with purple polka dogs. I didn't care what he was, what he looked like, what it was, as long as he won. That's what I wanted. I wanted talent. And so if you have, I think sometimes these people go, I'm a chocolate guy. I'm a Chesapeake guy. I'm a yellow guy or I'm a golden guy. Um, and if they only will pursue that dog, then they're limited to what that gene pool has to offer them. Where a person that's going, I don't care what it is, as long as it's winning. That's what I want. I want a winner. Um, then if the chocolates are winning, I'd go get a chocolate. If it was a red hot chocolate breeding out there and I thought I could win with it, I'd be on it. Um, but more times than not, the breeding, if I have five breedings to choose from that are that type of breeding, they're all gonna be black labs. And there might be occasionally one that's got that chocolate in there, I don't know. But the point is, guys get into the thing, I'm a chocolate guy. So they, don't, they, they care more about the color than they do about the win. I cared more about the win and the people that promote big time dogs are promoting more about the win than they're pursuing dogs that are winning. And so they don't care what, if it's a yellow, they don't care what it is as long as it wins. So personally, have you seen a lot of chocolate labs win? No. In, what? No. What? No. One more time? No, I haven't. Okay. <laughs> I just was making sure I, I couldn't hear you through these headphones. Um, I've been, you know, on the road a bunch the last 10 years, met a lot of dog trainers, a lot of guys that have kennels, a lot of people that run hunt tests, run field trials, Brad Arrington at Mossy Pond. I've, you've heard me brag on him a bunch. Um, in my opinion, he's the best I've ever personally been around. I haven't spent a lot of time as, as much time as I've spent with Brad. I don't think that I've afforded that amount of time to any of the other dog trainers that have come in and out of my life. Not to say that they're, they're not, great people that they're not unbelievable bad i know chris aiken he's the cream of the crop when it comes to kennels and having a awesome dog operation and he can train a dog um i know a lot of the guys with avery sporting dog that run the super retriever series shannon nardi has done an awesome job of building that um but brad errington when i watch him he's just got this almost kind of a dog whisper and i know that a lot of people are going to say this about their trainers and hear me out on this is that he just seems like he gets it. He's young. He's probably 33, 34 years old. And for that age, he just seems like he's got um, a way with dogs. Um, now, I'm not saying that every other trainer in the country does it. My question is, he's my favorite dog trainer in the world, and he makes his living doing it. He's very good at it. He's proven that through what he's, through what he's accomplished, both in the hunt tests and the field trials and the breedings and his, his operation and his, his amount of revenue that he does. Doesn't mean that just because you have a lot of revenue coming in that you're a badass dog trainer. I'm not saying that either, but he's a badass dog trainer. There's no way that you're as good a dog trainer as him because you're not a pro. 
you're an amateur. And we started off this conversation by talking about this topic. You can't be a good dog trainer if you're an amateur, right? Is this a misnomer in the dog? And again, I'm uneducated on this a little bit because when I hear pro dog trainer, I'm like, oh man, he must be a different level in the major leagues as opposed to Kirk. He's down here in the minors because he's an amateur. It's not the case, right? No, no, it's not. Um, Now, again, I'm not looking for an answer for you to say, well, you know, Brad is a badass dog trainer and I'm nowhere near his talent. I already know that you're a badass dog trainer. I'm just simply saying that there's no way that you can be as good as Brad because he's a pro and you're an amateur because you don't have time to be a pro because you're over here running a multi-million dollar construction company. There's a, there's a lot of, of questions here that are unanswered. Can a person get a quality job done by an amateur dog trainer? And probably that amateur is not going to allow his services to be out there for everybody to bring their dog to because he's not being paid for it. That's what being an amateur means, right? You're not being paid to train somebody's dog as opposed to Brad Arrington. He He's bringing in money from people that send him their dogs and he's training them and housing them and kenneling them and feeding them and making sure their veterinarian records are kept up to date. He's a professional dog trainer. You're not claiming to be that. So there's no way you could be as good as him, right? Well, I, I don't know how good anybody is, particularly one way or the other. I mean, in any given day, but in general, um, there are amazing, amazing um, amateur dog trainers. Uh, there are probably more good amateurs than there are good pros because anybody can put up a business and say I'm a pro all they need is somebody to give you five dollars for obedience and you're officially a pro doesn't make you a good anything teach the dog to sit you're a professional dog trainer so there's obviously different levels of training that occur and as you move up that level of training ladder the number of good pros gets much smaller much, much smaller. And when you get to the top of that ladder, it's not, it's not a big, not a big platform for a lot of good pros. Now at that same level, I'm talking the national level, there are a lot of good amateurs that, and just about any pro will tell you that a good amateur with a good dog is really hard to beat because the amateur has the advantage because they have more one-on-one time. They have more of a connection than the pro does with that dog. Um, that's something that they, good amateurs take advantage of. Good amateurs train like pros. Most of them are not working anymore, the good ones. I'm talking the really top level um, guys. They're, they're retired and they're out there with their, their group of multi, and most of them have their own training grounds and those guys are badass dog trainers. They know their stuff. And there many times, many times there's been a, a one that would go pro and, and, and then just, they didn't do that well because they were really good at running really good dogs, four, three, four, five of them. The pro, the good pros have to be really good at training 15 dogs. Um, that's, that's where their niche really comes in. If you gave two people the, the same abilities of the dog training abilities, the same grounds and the same um, help, the, the one that, that has the ability to, to adapt from one dog to the next, what this dog needs, what this dog needs, what this dog needs, that's what makes a great pro. Anybody else can be a pro and, and get money for it. But the truly great pros, the ones that cannot be replaced by an amateur, the one that, no, I can't go be that guy. 
they're the ones that go, okay, this dog needs this, and then immediately switch gears and be on to that next dog on the same, running the same test. But you've pulled out the next dog and, you're, and you run that dog totally different because that's what that dog needs at that time. Now, an amateur, they can do that too. And um, they can do it within their own dogs because they only have their dogs and they know them. They know them intimately and they know them better than the pro does. But they, the ones that can manage 10 and 15 dogs, they're the pro. The, the amateur is going to run the really good, the top of the level. They're going to run four or five dogs and adjust to what those dogs need. So my answer is probably there are more good amateurs than there are good pros. But you, when you go to a field trial or a hunt test, you're not running the same test as a pro. They're, that's a harder test. No, no, no. You run the same test. No way. No, same thing. Oh, really? So an amateur is doing the exact same thing the pro is, the same exact test, the same exact judges, the same exact qualifications. He, that dog and that trainer are being judged on the exact same down to the minuscule detail criteria as the pro dog is. Yes, with the exception of one stake, and that's the amateur stake. They have the, in the field trials, you have the derby open to everybody. It's the same test. Everybody runs the same thing, same judges. Qualifying, a little bit older dog. Derby's a very, the younger dog's up to two years old. Qualifying's intermediate um, transition period. Same dog, same test, same judges, pros, amateurs. Then you have the major stakes. You have an open and you have an amateur. They're essentially the same stake. Just the open is open to everybody. The amateurs and the pros all run it. And the amateur is limited to just the amateurs. And the theory behind that was the big thing a pro has an advantage on in a field trial. If I walk, I drove my 10 hours to get to the Oregon trial and I've got my two dogs, three dogs maybe. If, if you're really four dogs, if you're really into it as an amateur and I walk up there with four bullets, which is a lot of bullets for an amateur. Most people drive up there, their 10 hours and drive up there with one or two. And I got two shots to do this test. And then if I don't do the first series, I'm out and I don't get to move on to the next test. That pro is going to walk up there with 15 to 20 bullets. So he's going to figure out the idiosyncrasies of the test. If I go this side of the bush, that side of the bush, how do I run this test? And it's a game of inches uh, as far as your, your, um, how you move with the dog, where you point, where you have him looking, all these small things, game of inches. And I go up there and I figured out after my two dogs, boy, if I had to put him on that side of that one bush, I'd have got it. Well, that pro, he figured it out after two dogs also, but he's got 17 left to run. So that's where the pro has a giant advantage in field trials over an amateur. You have, a, this is interesting to me too. You go to a restaurant and you have this reputation of this chef. Hear me out. I'm going to this steakhouse because this chef has been, you know, he's been marketed. He's the, the Gordon Ramsay of, of steakhouses, right? He's, I'm going there because... I've heard his steaks the best. Well, you get there and you're like, hey, can I get a picture at the chef? And the, the maitre d' says, oh, he's not here. He's over visiting his new restaurant in Paris. And you're like, well, I wonder if the steak's going to be the same tonight as it would be if he was here. You take your dog to a kennel, a trainer, and that trainer has several trainers working underneath him in his business, which happens. Mm -hmm. You have the main guy that owns the company and then he's hired these trainers. 
Is it common that every single one of those trainers have been trained to a T by the owner and his ideologies of dog training to where when they market this owner and this, this training service and kennel, that all of these trainers are going to teach the exact same theories and practices and drills and everything that that owner has taught them to do? Or is it to each their own and that owner more than likely is going to let them turn out the dog? You know where, you know where I'm going with that? Yeah. The owner, um, the owners, they're not going to train those guys. There's no, it's not possible. There are, they do. Don't get me wrong. Now there, there are every, every great trainer has usually not everyone, but a lot of times it's, it's, more times than not, they'll get a guy in there and they'll teach him up. They'll bring him up. They'll teach him everything they know. And then next thing you know, they're competing against them because they've taught him everything. They, they're good. They're really good. They're really great, you know, right below the main dude. Why am I sitting by, behind his shadow? Boom, they go off to the side and they're on their own and they do well. They do well at it. So that's a big, I've always been a quandary for um, pros is to get help and not eventually be training your own competition. Makes a, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, didn't, I, I wasn't even thinking of that when I asked the question, but that makes total sense there. Yeah. So what's happening now, um, the, the, new, the new thing is you do see kennels with a lot of trainers underneath them. And I can't speak to every single kennel, um, but just in general, if a trainer under the other trainers was as good as the head dude, he'd be a head dude. You know what I mean? Now, it doesn't mean that they're not on their way up and going to be. It's just that they're not there yet. So there's no way that if, if one of those kennels has five trainers working for them, and there are that have that and sometimes more and sometimes less, whatever, those guys can't possibly have trained all those guys to do everything exactly the way they do it. They wouldn't have got any dogs trained. Now they did, they'll, they'll be maybe start out throwing birds and pin, you know, doing no young dog obedience. They'll get them going in the right direction. Don't get me wrong. They'll, they're going to get them going in their, in the direction that their vision is for that kennel. But dog training, in my opinion, is a combination of art and science. And it, it's a, it's an art, it's a science because you can, I can teach you two plus two is four and I can give you the drills and I can show you drills and teach you the drills to do and label them. But then when you go on, you apply those drills, you have to adjust because every dog's not the same. That's when the science comes in. That's what I was talking about. Pro being able to adjust from one dog to the next. The science is picking out when to do something and when not to do something. You, you know, I, you always do this drill, but when this happens in that drill, what do I do now? This dog did something different than the last dog in this drill. Then you've got to have the knowledge and the science, the feel, the feel for, excuse me, the, the art of it comes in that you have the feel for knowing what to do. That makes you a dog person or not a dog person. I, anybody can go read a book and learn to do the drills exactly the way they're designed and taught. But as soon as that dog deviates from what is expected based off of the rules, the way they're written, then what do you do? That's when you have to make an adjustment and that's when the art comes into it. So a trainer can teach them all of those things, but that, that trainer, the head trainer can teach the underlings the drills. He can't possibly put the dog person, put the dog into that, you know what I mean? Make a, make a dog person out of a non-dog person. So you, you either have it or you don't. So yes, they can teach them and they'll get them going in the right direction. 
and I don't know if I'm answering your question or being ambiguous, but the gist of it would be, they're all learning how to, that's what they all want to do. They've hired on to try to learn to be dog trainers and they're working their way up. And it's eventually when they get to the point that they're as good as the main guy, they're going to be their own main guy. So the main guy's got to have the business sense of, hey, if I'm going to invest my time and teach you how to be a dog trainer, then I'm going to have to grow this business to afford to pay you a good enough salary to teach you to not go out on your own. Because it's almost like, well, if I teach you everything I own, and now all of a sudden you go down the road two miles and open up your own kennel, and you're teaching the same exact things I just taught you for the last 36 months of your life, um, that's that's kind of... that's as an owner of a kennel, you're like, man, I, I can't afford that to happen. So why would you ever even train somebody without the, without the 10 year contract guarantee that you're going to be under my wing for at least 10 years until I make a fortune and you're not going to go out there and try to cut, take my clientele or whatever. Yeah. It's I guess a, it's like that in any business, isn't it? It, it is. This, and this one is, it's been a problem for these guys. <laughs> it continually happens. It does not matter how long it's, they've been training. There's some big names that I could give you that it's just recently happened to. And it, it shuts them down. It cuts their knees out from underneath them for a while until um, they get the next guy and get them up and running. And, and they, because those guys are training that one guy, they have their assistant. In my opinion, the, the guys that are really doing the, the real upper level, high caliber national training are, are in there with one or two assistants and they're really monitoring how things go it's like anything else eventually when there's things watered down and so if i have to grow my business like you said if i have to grow this business so i can afford to pay him what he needs to be paid to not go someplace that means i've got to have this level of of dog or this amount of dogs i've got to get this nut to break it and then that means i've got to have another guy doing this the yard work another guy doing obedience whatever it might be all these steps well that continues to grow and so you continue and there it's happened there are kennels out there that are monumentally big with many dogs with many trainers well what point does it start to become watered down how much have you that's got became successful because a trainer was good and now you've got a kennel that's got 10 trainers maybe whatever it might be are they producing the same product than when it was just the guy who was good at what he did and producing dogs you know that and there's, i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it it's just that when you you you're going to go you're going to get to a level you can only take that to a certain level because to go beyond that level you've got to refocus it you can't have 10 really good guys you know or, you know you're going to you're going to have to get to, does that make sense? It started off with a guy being successful and then became too good. So he's got too big of a business. So he can't produce the product anymore. But yeah. I mean, you could say the same thing about a restaurant. You could say the same thing exactly. about a shoe shiner. Yep. You can say the same thing about a, a guy that makes custom leather baseball gloves. He used to make, he used to put hours and hours into this one glove and you'd go get it. And you'd be like, this is the finest piece of leather I've ever worn on my hand to fill this ground ball or catch this fill this ground ball or catch this pop fly. And then all of a sudden he gets so popular that he hires all these other leather makers that come in there. And then you go back and you're like, 
Well, that's not the same piece of land. And I'm not saying that there's not companies out there that do keep that same attention to detail and quality and, 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 and commitment to excellence. But when you're talking to, I just had, I was just asking a question. Like if you got go there on a, on a surprise whim and you drive up to the dog trainer and you're expecting to see the main guy out there that you were told was the baddest ass dog trainer in the country. And you walk up and you got a 19 year old Billy Bob out there throwing, throwing, is it fair to pass judgment or are you still in good hands? And I'm sure that there's two sides of that story for sure. There's probably examples and experiences out there that are on both sides of the argument. I, I, that's exactly where I was going with this is that how long does it take or how big do you get before you can't provide the quality that you did when you were just this, you know, quote unquote amateur with one or two bullets going up to Oregon. It, it just seems like this is a specialized service that the attention to detail has to be dead on dead on. I mean, you can't skip a beat on, on these dogs. They have, and we're going to get into that and, and it might not happen on today's podcast, but the dog world is awesome. And I have in the last maybe four years being around Brad and seeing how awesome it is, it, it, it brings the question, it brings to mind all these questions that I have about, it. I have so many, I'm, I want to be inquisitive about it because they're so important to me. I'm so attached to Duff. I'm so attached to Axel. My good buddy, Christian Curtis, um, we, we worked with Brad Arrington on a dog named Mo a few years ago. That's three, you know, a little over three years old now that's done it all in the field trials, done it all in the hunt test and retrieved his first mallard with us last year in the state of Iowa. And Mo is, even though he's not, he's Christian's dog, he's so special to me to know that we were a part of that. And there's just that, that bond. And you know what I'm talking about. We don't, we can go into that bond more later on, but I, that question was heavy on my mind about, is there such thing as too many, too big of a kennel, too big of a training operation? And I think that there's two sides of that story. There is. And I don't want to leave it um, maybe the way I feel like I've left it <clears throat> because there are certainly a kennel. If, I would like to say, if, think if I had a kennel and I were, and it was in the need of, of um, multiple dog trainers to help me facilitate what I need to do. What I would want to do is, is rather than try to say, okay, here, you're go be a dog trainer. You give them these dogs. Okay. I want this guy to be, he's my obedience guy. He's make him really good at that. And then I don't have to expect him to be, to learn the idiosyncrasies of teaching a young dog, maybe to, to handle whatever, whatever you may be training them to do, but give your underlings specifics and then you can maintain more quality control. And so I would assume that that's probably what's taking place in a lot of these kennels where there are a lot of trainers. Not to get broad brush it and say you can't do that because it can be done. It's just I would think that would be a more successful way of doing it. Specialize your underlings. Sounds like your construction company. You're not going to have you're not going to have your roofer go pour a foundation. I want my roofer to be proficient in roofing. In roofing. And you want your framer to be proficient in framing. Right. You want your electrician to not burn the place down. In the meantime, I'm not teaching them all to be a general contractor and compete against me later. <laughs> and you're hoping that they're not, <laughs> you're hoping that they're not going to the Coney Island having a lunch with, with right. you know, you don't want to train them so good to where they get so proficient at roofing that the next biggest company comes and goes, man, he's a badass roofer. I'm going to give, it's business is so tough, man. It's like, how much knowledge do you give somebody? How much rope do you give somebody until they hang them? There's just so many questions. And when you talk about the emotional co commitment with a dog and co connection with a dog, then it just adds a whole other layer of things. And you said a word early in this discussion that has stuck with me. And I'm not going to say the word until I'm into my question a little bit, but 
I'm laying on my leather. I'm sitting on a leather couch when I'm a kid and I'm five years old and I got my crayons out and mom doesn't know I have them, but I'm over there just lighting this leather up with, with, or the wall with this red crayon and mom goes, Chad, stop. And then she goes back to cooking. And then here I go with the purple crayon. She looks over at me, chat, stop. And then she looks, goes back to getting the corn on the cob peeled off. And now I take the yellow and I start marking up the lampshade. Chad, well, I told you to stop. Well, damn, mom. I mean, that's all you did is you just told me to stop. I'm going to, I didn't get in trouble. You just yelled a little bit and I'm having fun over here. You use the word nag. My mom's nagging me now and I think I can get away with some stuff. So I keep going. Would it have been better for mom to come over there and slap my hand and take that crayon and say, don't do that again, or you're not going to, you're not going to get to go to summer camp or that, you know, discipline, whatever your format of discipline is. Spanking used to be allowed. Now, if you spank your kid in a store, you look like your Je- people look at you like your Jeffrey Dahmer, which that's a whole other discussion, Kirk. We're not even going to get into that because you and I grew up with ass whippings and I'm not afraid to get my ass whipped. Never. I mean, I was by my dad, but I think it made me into the person that I was different discussion with a dog sit 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 and that dog's just sitting there going well i mean i'm just chilling here i'm not am i going somewhere with this question of there is a such thing as a nagging dog trainer or nagging dog owner or nagging dog handler to where you don't have to do that you don't have to tell your dog to sit a hundred times but you've ran across a lot of guys including the person sitting across this table from you right now you're looking at me going how many freaking times are you going to tell him to sit before you go over there and, and talk to me a little bit about nagging and, and what your thoughts are on that? Well, that's a real big thing for that, that whole mindset. Uh, we've talked about it, and it's a big thing for me with, with young dogs. It's, it's really where you start or what you should not do when you start. But when you get a puppy, you're going to have to say sit 15 times because you're teaching it to sit sit and you push his butt down, sit. And then he stands up and you say, sit. And that's, that's training your dog. Um, now when your dog has learned sit and you're on the other side of the room and, and, uh, you, you want him to, you want to be doing something and not have him underfoot. You put him over there and you say, sit. And, um, and he sits there for a few minutes and then he's wandering around looking at you and, and you don't do, you know, okay. And then you kind of gets underfoot and I'm trying to present a, a, a scenario that's very plausible and probably happened to most people. And so now he's underfoot again. Yeah, dang it. Now get up. Now sit. I told you to sit. Sit down over there. And so he's, again, he's sitting. And then, you know, you, you, it's your responsibility with a young dog to be cognizant of the fact that you're training that dog 24 hours a day, not just when you've walked over and told him to sit, as soon as you told him to sit is your responsibility to out of the corner of your eye to be watching that dog to make sure he sits. Now, with the understanding that we know this dog, say a year old, he knows sit, but I told him to sit. So I got a corner of my eye, I gotta be watching him to make sure that when he, that if he gets up, I'm on him quick because I don't wanna nag. You don't wanna, it's, it's unfair to the dog for the dog to get punished or in any fashion, um, after you've told that dog to sit or whatever command you may give him 15 times, and then you get mad and you bust him for whatever, whatever way you want to go about it. And now the dog's going, okay, I got it. Somewhere between the 13th and the 15th time is when I got to pay attention. (laughs) 
So around 12, I better start keeping my ears open because I know it's, how hard is that for a dog to learn? That, that's unfair. It makes your, the learning process of, the, of a young dog take much longer. If the first thing you teach a dog is no, and that dog's stop, everything stops, his world stops. It doesn't mean his world's ended. It doesn't mean the sky's falling, but he just knows no. And that may start off with, you know, a swat on the butt or whatever it may be, or even a stomp on the ground, something to startle the dog enough to go, he stops and looks at you. Now you show him that the world's okay. You just stop doing what you were doing. And now I'm not mad. I'll pet you and this, that, and the other, but no. So that you get that ingrained. That word no will benefit you the rest of the time. So when he does get up out of the corner of your eye and you've told him to sit over there and you see him out of the corner of your eye, you don't tell him to sit again. No. And he'll stop and look at you. Oh, and, and you go over, then you make him sit. And you've told him one time, I didn't tell him to sit again. I told him, no, you go sit him down. That's fair. The dog can understand that. And then when later on, when the training progresses, he's going to learn to trust you. You through that process, through doing that in that just aspect, but taking that and applying it to every part of it, that philosophy, the dog learns to trust you and that you only, you only do um, corrections when corrections are warranted and fair and clear. And that dog's progression is gonna be much, much faster. You're gonna see a much, you're gonna be have a young dog that people look at and go, wow, he's only eight months old. That's pretty impressive. Because most of the time people do that and it takes the dog so much longer to learn that one thing and then taking longer to learn that one thing he finally deciphered that between 12 and 15 i need to sit now i move on to the next command the next stage of, of my training you know he's going okay well okay i'm getting this now i just got to figure out the timing when do i need to do this one is it between 20 and 22 times or is it between one and seven you know if he knows it, it's consistent it's always the same his progression and learning is going to be much greater and the, the, it's just a, a better connection between you and the dog so it almost sounds like on the same topic of you're the dog trainer and you're training duff in this instance to to be a duck dog or a quality dog obedience and and listening and sitting and obeying commands and, and hand signals and whistle stops and whistle come all everything that goes into the this training well, what about the owner now? I mean, I, I'm sitting here, go, I'm literally in awe sitting here listening to you like, maybe you should become a dog trainer before you become a parent in life because you, you, take, it's, it's, you take the same ideologies that you're talking about with a dog, a puppy that doesn't speak English, and then you apply them to some, a kid that understands. It just seems like there's a, a, a right way to do things. And being the owner of Duff, now it's my responsibility to go spend time with you. And now I'm sitting here thinking, now I know why Brad Arrington's up my ass all the time about, you need to get out to Georgia. You need to get out to New York. You need to come and spend some time with Axel. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be with him in the field this fall. That's not the same. It's a lesson learned right here it, it, during this discussion that as the owner of the dog and the dog or the, the, the person that's going to be handling that dog in the field for many several years to come, now you got to go get trained by that trainer. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. And that's one of the things, probably the biggest problems trainers have is they'll train a dog up and say what we talked about earlier. You've got the good blood and you got the good training and everything is good. He's, all the cards are in play. And now he gives them to you 
and you go out and you hunt for a year and the next year he's screwing up and you're going, well, now you're bad mouthing this trainer because their dog's doing stupid stuff. Well, you spent a year untraining him because you weren't trained. You didn't take the time to understand how to work the machinery that you were given. And you don't, you know, you gotta, you gotta know how to drive it before you can, uh, or you'll screw it up. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a living, breathing thing that's learning. And like I've talked, they're always learning. They're constantly learning. And, and when you don't make him do things, he's learning then too. You're training your dog all the time. You're just training them something good or you're training something bad. I mean, from the moment they're born, it's like anything, you're learning. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, a puppy, you've seen them dream. So you're trying, one of my point was, you're training a puppy 24 hours a day. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, let's go training. You, you load up and you get into the training mode. And there's, certainly that's, that's, a, that's a thing. You go do that. But you're training that dog the minute you get it, you're training that dog when it's sleeping. And I mean, what I mean by that is, a, you, we know dogs dream. And a little puppy, he doesn't have any life experiences yet. So what's he dreaming about? He's dreaming about whatever took place during the course of that day. And he's six months old. And, and so he's thinking about things. And we have to just assume that being that his life experiences are short and you're a big part of his life, he's going to be dreaming about the things that took place. So you're, my thing is you're training them 24 hours a day, even when they're sleeping. Uh, and so you always want to be cognizant of the fact that you have to be fair to the dog and it's only fair to the dog to be consistent in whatever it is you do because they're going to be thinking about it too. It makes a ton of sense. You shouldn't train with the collar though, right? Is this, again, I'm going back to the things I've heard, uh, mm -hmm. the things that people say, the antis, um, a collar is unethical. And when I talk about a collar, I'm not talking about a regular dog collar. I'm talking about a training collar, mm -hmm. a, sh a quote unquote shock collar, which I don't know if that's the right terminology to use. But they call them e-collars. E-collars now. Yeah. now. Shock collars is what people that don't like, that's a negative connotation. Um, the nagging, the training, the telling them one time, you don't go over there and kick your dog. You give them a nick. This is what I've heard. This is what I heard trainers do. You give them a nick. Um, is it unethical, Kirk, to train a dog with an e-collar? Is it unethical after that dog's gone through training in boot camp as per se, quote unquote boot camp, to hunt with that dog with the collar on and you have the, the, the remote around your neck by your duck call lanyard? Um, and is there a certain age that you wait on in the puppy stage of a dog's life, puppy phase of a dog's life, wh what's the right age to put a collar on if, it, if it's even uh, ethical to put one on? Or is it unethical to, to, to ever own an e-collar, train with an e-collar, hunt with an e-collar? Your opinion is, or is, is it just a, is it a dumb question, like it's a no-brainer? Well, I don't think it's a dumb question. Um, for me, I don't think it's unethical. I, I've only used collars and the thing about it I, I the, the the term i guess maybe you might some people get hung up on see i i don't think you train with a collar you train a dog and then you enforce you you if it's done correctly you're strictly using that collar to enforce things that are already known so and if all of that is done correctly the dog the way the philosophy is the dog knows the dog has the transmitter in its hand from the standpoint of you've taught it how to shut 
that collar off. You've taught it that it's in control of the collar. And again, goes back to consistency. You have to be like this. Um, if you if you're not consistent, you can't have the dog thinking like this. But if you do, the dog goes, okay, I know I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z, and I did X. I don't feel like doing Y, but then, but I know I should. And so then he doesn't do Y, and then you you give him a correction. And he goes, oh, yeah, okay. Can't get away without doing that one. Got to do each step. But he knows it. It's clear to him. Um, and he knows why it happened. And he knows how to make it stop because he's been trained that he's in control of that transmitter to that degree. That's, that's kind of maybe a little bit too sophisticated line of thought. But that's the way I like to think about it. Um, but no, it's not unethical to train with a collar. In fact, I'd, I'd say it's in some ways it's more ethical because again, it takes the nagginess out of a lot of things. I can do a quick, crisp correction without a lot of hoopla. You're, it's in and it's done and it's over and you move on. And, um, and that dog just knows that he felt that because something was wrong. He's conditioned now because you just said the ideology is that he has control of that collar. He feels that Nick, he's got control, shuts it off. It's, it's almost like you train with that collar and then it's done. Or it's the same thing when you take him into the field after and now he's a hunting dog. It's the same thing, right? My point is, is that if you go over there and you're beating on that dog, which is the other way to discipline somebody that we all know about, then he knows that you're bad. Like that teaches, that tells me as just a duck hunter guy that owns some dogs that he's probably going to lose trust in you or like maybe build up this wall against you or be scared of you to where if he doesn't know where that Nick's coming from per se, is that, is that fair to say? Well, the, the, that's the thing about the collar is if you just strap the collar on a dog and you zap them, as far as they know, they, God just came down and you know, bam, they don't know where it came from. And that's the, that's the bad part. That's where it gets a bad name. When a dog's not, is not taught properly how, how, it, how to react to the collar. You know, if you just were just walking down the street and you just got electrocuted out of the blue, you don't really know. And the reason you got, you know, shocked was because you stepped to the left of a line that you didn't know was there. You didn't learn anything because you just got shocked for doing something you didn't even know one way or the other. And you don't even know, you don't, you don't apply the two things together. You just know this happened. You don't relate to, oh, but it's because I did this. Now, if you, that happened a thousand times, you'd figure it out. The proper way is before that that dog gets over that line. So it, he knows, and this is very rudimentary and, and um, it's, it's being put in a way so we can talk about it. Cause there's always the, there's, the, there's gonna be the, the adjustments the fine tuning of things, but this is the gist of it. Um, you have to teach that dog what that correction is for and how to respond to it. If it's not, you can tell somebody, a dog that's not been um, taught to respond correctly to a correction because it doesn't know why it was corrected. It was just corrected and the dog responds ad adversely. When the dog responds positively in the correct response because of a correction, that dog knows what the correction is for. That's the telltale of, of a dog that understands. Every dog is different. So each, each response is going to be different, but that's the gist of it. So if a person takes the time to understand and at least investigate in time in an information gathering process, a caller is a very, very ethical way to train and continue to hunt with that dog 
If it's done right. If it's done right, it's I, I go. I think it's much more ethical. I think it's much cleaner, crisper to do that quick correction, and it's in and it's done versus trouncing around, chasing the dog around, doing whatever you may be trying to do to get your your point across. Because if you, you're just that's how it, you usually see you usually see those guys doing that. Um, now, the fastest way to ruin a dog is to use a collar wrong. Um, I've used this term, you can take it out of them, but you can't put it back in. So I can, I can take a, the most high powered dog in the world and I can take it, that desire out of them. Some people would disagree that that's not true. There are some dogs that you think you can't possibly take this desire out. Well, I run them over with my truck, the desire is gonna be gone. Um, but my point is you can, there's always something you can do to any dog to take that desire out. Yes, some dogs you have to flat kill them to get the desire out of them. But most dogs, you can take that desire out somehow, but you can never put it back. You can wreck a dog. It's real hard to fix a wrecked dog. So the fastest way to wreck a dog is to use a collar wrong. So I would, you, if you do it, um, you have to do it very in a very educated way or very specific. Again, if you were to if you were to step across that arbitrary line on the street and you got shocked, you're not going to know what it was for. But after the hundredth time, you're going to finally put it together. But if that's the only thing that, that you had to learn through being shocked, you're going to learn that. But if, you, if we expect you to learn 25 other things that correspond, correspond with possibly stepping over that arbitrary line, you need to know why. But if all I expect you to do is learn that one thing, so if you were to take a collar and just expect one thing with the dog, you could do it you'd still stand the risk of screwing the dog up because you don't know what you're doing. The dog doesn't know what was happening. And that's the most unfair thing you can do to a dog. Make, it makes so much sense. In my opinion. Impossible to talk about everything I wanted to. I thought I was going to get through everything, but you're, you're an amateur dog trainer and um, you've never, you've never had a, a, you've never ran a field trial. Is that what you told me? You've never, you've never had a hunt test or a, you were a field trial guy only, but you've, you've never had any success in that world or oh, what? No, I had some, I had some success in the field trial. I did run some hunt tests when early on, um, real early on, but, um, I moved quickly moved to the field trials and I, I was fortunate to have some just dabbled in it. <laughs> no, I, I was, uh, Kirk brag a little bit i've waited until the very end of this conversation because here's the deal you're you it's been so cool listening to you talk about and i want to get into more of it down the road again on another podcast because the training stuff is so interesting to me and and how you think and i want to it'd be interesting to, to sit down and talk to other trainers if they if they think around those lines and i'm sure a lot of them do the ones especially the ones that you associate yourself with that i've met through you It'd be interesting to me to see, do they have the same ideology, the same thought processes and the same opinions on the things we discussed today? What have you accomplished? Do you have any accomplishments in field trials? I, I have some accomplishments. Um, I started in the early 90s and um, I, for several years, I grew up in the sport. My dad uh, dabbled in field trials and I took it a little bit further along. Um, I, I was... Uh, I've been involved at the national level. I was the, uh, on the board of directors for the National Retriever Club. I was president of the National Retriever Club, uh, two-time finalist of the National Retriever Championships. One time I, I do have an NFC champion uh, that I had. We won in 1999. I judged the 1998 National Open Championships. And um, 
I was involved in many, many other nationals as far as the um, coordination. I'm still to some, I'm not, I'm retired. I've been out of it for a while now. I'm still, all my very close friends are still in the, in the sport. I'm very involved in it with my friends still. I'm not in the politics of it anymore uh, that I used to be. I am currently playing around with some dogs again for the first time in a few years and having some luck with that. But when I was going hard, I just talk about the amateur versus the pro. I tried to combine the best of both worlds. I was running six dogs. I had a dog truck. I had my hired my own bird boys. I trained by myself on the weekdays and then grew up with a group on the weekends. I had my own flight pens and bird pens. And um, I trained seven days a week and um, was able to be fortunate to have some success. And I was very fortunate to be brought under the wing of some very good, knowledgeable people, Joe Boatwright, um, from Escalon, Oakdale, California. He brought me under his wing and he got me involved in the national politics and the national side of the Retriever Club. There's two clubs, there's National and National Amateur. I was involved in the National Open Retriever Club. And so he brought me up through that and I went through those ranks and did that. And along the way, had some success. I've run several nationals with several different dogs. And uh, so that's, that's what I did. So you, uh, the championship that you won in 1999, what does that mean? What, what did that entail? Well, in, in rea- it's the biggest one that there is. If, if, everybody, there's, there's all of the Huntus, and then there's the qualifiers, and there's the derbies, and there's the amateur. And the open is the biggest one there is, the most difficult. And I didn't, I, we won, um, uh, I was, had a partner in it, but the open is, is the, to- the top of the top. Of, that's the one that's the, there's nothing higher in retrievers in retrievers um that's the top show that there is so you had the top labrador retriever in the united states in 1999 we won the we doesn't we had the top one we had the best one that week that week <laughs> yeah and i was and what was his name or her Cr- name croppers river waters black teal croppers rivers water black Teal, and you had a partner in owning that dog yeah, or the, training that dog? Joe, Joe Boatwright, who I mentioned earlier, um, he passed away, and the dog was um, young, coming up. And he willed the dog to a very good friend of mine, Bill Sargeni. And Bill Sargeni, myself, and Marilyn Boatwright um, had the dog. Uh, and, and I was fortunate. I ran the dog in two um, national amateurs, and I was a finalist both times uh, in the national amateur with her. Um, and then Bill ran her in the National Retriever Championship. I was the chairman that year for that trial, and he won it that year in 99 with that dog. Wow. Yeah. So you weren't the handler in it. You were the I trainer. I was not the handler. I was not the handler. I just I handled the dog and helped train it. I mean, I, had, I was part of the dog. But after that trial was the open, Bill Sargeni, um, very, very close friend of mine, um, he and I were partners with the dog technically, and Marilyn. Um, and he ran the dog and he won, he had the, he got the win. Does Duff have some potential? Duff's a neat dog. I like Duff a lot. I, I don't know about, I mean, you and I talked about this a little bit. I don't know. Um, you never know if a dog's going to be a, a field trial dog or not. I mean, you, you know, you just don't know how great they can be. Um, I think Duff's a good good dog. I don't know if he's going to go out and be a national caliber dog or not. And I don't know if 
you were looking to do the things that you know need to be done for that. Uh, it's very hard to have a national caliber dog and a hunting dog. It's, they are there. They're rare, but they are there. Um, Duff, I, if, I think Duff's going to be amazing for what you want to do. I think he could be a, a, qual, a field trial dog all day long um, in the qualifying level. Um, not, I don't think that would be an issue at all. Uh, so you like him? I like Duff a lot. So has it ever happened like you see these shows or these sitcoms or these movies where the baby's in the delivery room and they get switched up? And then, or this nurse is a psychotic nurse and she goes, I can't have, a, you know, she can't have kids. So she steals the baby and replaces it with another one without the parents. You know, you know where I'm going with that. I don't know. If it's probably happened in real life. I'm sure it has if we Googled it and read reports on it. As a dog trainer, have you ever looked at a dog like Duff and went, man, I wonder if I just go get another yellow lab and I get him over here and I, and I replace him and he looks enough like Duff. Chad hasn't seen Duff in a, in a few weeks. He's probably not gonna, he's probably not gonna realize that this isn't Duff. Um, I'm just going to keep calling this dog Duff enough until he starts coming to Duff. So when Chad calls him Duff, he comes, you ever just want to just take somebody's dog and replace him with one that's not as good? Oh, if I wanted to. Yeah. Heck yeah. All kinds of them. Yeah. There's a dog lean Mac that, uh, this pretty famous dog. And when I had Zoom, I was telling you about my, my Ducks Unlimited reject dog. Um, I ran against Lean Mac as a derby dog. And I don't know if you know who it is, but you can certainly look him up. He's the godfather of almost all good dogs these days. And the dog didn't even need to be, all he needed was somebody to drive him to the trial. He could just go up there and win after that. And boy, I'd have loved to switch those two out. Um, but that's, oh, many, many times. And, you know, boy, cloning, I'd love to just clone some of the ones. But there are there is some, something that did has happened, I was aware of. I, I, not too much that I want to get involved with. But you have a litter of puppies. You have ten, seven, seven puppies. Well, when I go in, not I, but in the past people have done, I know of, would go in and say, I have eight. And then it got an extra piece of paper. And then two years down the road, when somebody comes up, they've got a paper they can slide in on a dog. Unethical as hell. <laughs> really? You've heard of this happening? Uh -huh. Really? Yeah. I think that the, the, this, this world is interesting. What I really want to do, and we've talked about this already, is when we hit the road here in a couple of weeks, I want you to come out on some hunts. Obviously, we're going to have Duff. I don't have any intentions of him doing what our dog Axel is with Brad. I want you to hang with Brad. I want you to meet Brad because I think that, obviously, you guys are going to, have a ton of knowledge. You're going to have a ton in common. Um, he's not that guy. That's a, a know-it-all guy. That's going to make sure that you understand that he's the best. He is awesome, but so are you. And that's why I really wanted to make sure that people understood that as an amateur, you still have these accomplishments and you didn't even name 5% of your accomplishments. You named a few of the big ones. I know a lot more. I know that you have accomplished a ton in the dog world. It'd be really cool to, to, to coexist. You know, I have this great friend in Brad Arrington and he owns Mossy Pond, like I was telling you in Georgia and has an operation up in New York. And it'd just be cool to have a discussion like this on this life ain't for everybody with both of you to go back and forth and hear. Um, I want to get Brad out here to do it. I don't, I don't want to do it unless he's face to face with me because I love seeing the little bastards facial expressions and hearing him say here. And, and he's got that Southern accent. And so when he trains a dog, it's just, it's just, it's just fun to be around him because he's so animated and he's, he's a character and he's a great dude. I think you'd fall in love with him too. Like everybody else does that meet him. But as far as a pro dog trainer goes, that's my favorite in the country. That's the one that I would recommend to somebody. That's the one that I would choose to send 
my own dogs too. But I, I am so happy that you came into my life. And now because of my uh, allegiance and, and loyalty to your dad, I feel that he's one of my greatest friends. He's 40 years older than me, 44 years older than me. Wait, I take that back. 34 years older than me. God, I'm dyslexic, dyslexic today. <laughs> Well, um, you got younger, he got older. Yeah, right? no, but he's just one of my favorite people in the world. And me not having my dad and having less in my life and traveling with me and 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 being so passionate about dogs and ducks and big game and 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 friends and, and cooking and and opening his house and his property to me in so many different ways, from photo shoots to storage to to the point to where he even let me have a party there for my brother's 40th birthday and have a concert there and a, all the Traeger cooks come in and throw down on the grills. I mean, he's just a, a an unbelievable human being and I know that you're cut from the same fabric and I think that's what our lifestyle does it allows us to meet so many badass people and knowing that you came into my life and all I did was hey man you know we, we talked about duck calling one day at a at a sushi lunch with your dad and, and talked about different things at the Canvasback Duck Club and some of my thoughts and, and and so-called ideologies on duck hunting and then I started thinking man this dude's sharp and then you point me in the direction of a, a, a sire he tells me where this litter's dropping. I get one of their puppies. And now he's doing things in the, in the last four months with you that at seven months old, he's a badass. And I feel he's going to be awesome hunting dog. He's a beautiful dog. Duff's a stud. My daughter, Alyssa, loves him. And I owe a lot of that to you for doing what you're doing. But we have an agreement. We have a common bond that we understand what each other's doing. And I, I, I really think we got a lot out today that I wanted to. There's a lot more that I want to get into down the road by yourself with Brad Arrington on the road, at a lodge, in a camp, over a beer, whatever it is, there's this lifestyle of the dogs and the ducks is badass. And I'm, I'm humbled to be a part of it. I know that you are, I'm humbled to know you. I want to do more. And I want to end this by the video you showed me yesterday. I bragged about, and you hadn't showed your dad yet. And I showed him last night and he's like, whose dog is this? And I don't know if your wife knows about this dog. I don't know if your dad's not supposed I told your dad, don't say a word. <laughs> I said, Les, I didn't know you didn't know about this dog, but we watched the video of the three month old. He's freaking what is he doing in that video? And I know what he's doing in layman's terms. I could explain what I saw, but at three months, what that dog's doing, is that unheard of? No, it's not unheard of. It's, it's, he's it's, 90 days old. Yeah. I certainly worth sitting up and looking at, um, it's not unheard of, but, uh, it's, it's not that common either. What he's doing is he's, um, little guys going across a piece of water, um, where he loses, he, there's a gunner in the field, the gunner, throws a bumper and he when he leaves he gets into the water and he can no longer see that gunner so he has to at that age continue to swim and not just turn around come back blow bubbles but continues to swim without that visual get up on that piece of land go okay i'm going to keep going get in another piece of water swim across that one it's a re-entry go up and get that bumper so it was just a tremendous courage and focus uh display for that little guy. He took a direct line to it at three months. Was it luck or is he consistently doing this? No, he's, it's not luck. You almost have to, you kind of have to teach him to, you have to unteach him how to do that because their thing's going to be to go straight until we teach him how to, uh, reasons not to. Um, but that's inevitable. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anybody that dogs, does, um, they, through training, they're going to learn to suck the guns and, and run around things. But, you know, to start with, they're going um, to run over to wherever it is they want. Um, and then we put things in front of him and, and obstacles to teach him to not run straight. But it, he didn't know any different than to just go do that. So it was, it was, there was nobody's uh, talent there other than God, 
No training. I love how humble you are as far as like, that was freaking impressive. I mean, that, that's something that, that, you know, you're happy if a one-year-old's doing that kind of stuff, in my opinion. But again, I'm uneducated on it. And seeing that video, I was just like, that's the kind of dog you want. But again, the dog's three months old. If he's not trained right and he's not taught the right things like we discussed today, he could turn the other direction too. Maybe it is, maybe it is just God-given ability that can turn bad in a heartbeat if, if not taken care of or nurtured the right way. But this life ain't for everybody. This episode brought to you again by our friends at Bosch Drives, Louisiana. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you, Chris. Thank you guys for everything you do. You get us to where the ducks are on our edge boats. Your motors are badass. Can't wait to get the new 40 HP or 40 horsepower XP in the, uh, in the woods this year and the marshes this year. Leupold Optics, we, uh, we're blessed and humbled to be with you guys. Thank you for everything you do for all of our brands. And um, I can't wait to be scouting with your binos and spotting scopes and looking at ducks and geese coming to Alberta. Saskatchewan, Buck Paradise, Grant Kuypers, and Barkley Fisher, as well as over back into Alberta with Clay Charlton over at Taken. We're going to be headed up there soon, and we're starting it all over, living that life of the duck hunter. We're humbled to do it. New episodes of the Foul Life Season 10 are on the Outdoor Channel right now, like we mentioned before. We're going to be in Oklahoma with Flatline Outfitters and Blue Moore and those guys down there pretty soon. Moving on to Honey Break in Louisiana, Stillwater Outfitters in Colorado. Then we're in Argentina with Monty Baldwin and Argentina Duck Hunting Adventures. We got a lot going on, and in there's going to be a snow goose hunting episode that we're editing right now, and that's a lot of uh, snow goose, a lot of snow goose action. So if you want Foul Life merchandise, check us out at thefowllife.com and uh, visit the store. But we're humbled and blessed. Kirk Nesbitt, thank you very much for being here today. And uh, do you have any closing words at all? I don't. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, love your show and everything you're doing is very informative for the, for a lot of young people. I think they find your show extremely educational and get some wound up. Are you so considered a young person? That. You're 51. I mean, 51. I mean, you could be like 18 to 65 to like our show, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you flat bill wearing bastard. But guys, thank you so much. Kirk is a good friend of mine. His dad's a great friend of mine and uh, we're blessed to have him in our life. Um, look for uh, great things coming out of Brad Arrington and Mossy Pond Retrievers in Georgia. And like I said, he has an operation north of there in New York for the hot months in Georgia. He goes north, but he's a hell of a man, hell of a dog trainer and running a hell of an operation. Axel's coming out of him. Christian Curtis is going to be hunting with Mo this year. We're excited. This lifestyle's awesome. Ducks, dogs, duck calls, trucks, four-wheelers, boats, coffee pots, fire pits, high balls, cold beers, flooded timber, marshes, rivers. It doesn't matter, guys. We're duck hunters. We're blessed to do this. We're not entitled. I'm Chad Belding. This life ain't for everybody. Thank you so much for the support. Got a lot more great guests coming up. See you guys down the road. Tom, will you please do me a favor and play What You Gonna Do When The Money's All Gone, written by Leith Lofton and our good buddy Drake White, sung here by the one and only... Leith Lofton, a.k.a. Haas. Thank y'all. Take care. Say life on earth won't last that long. What you gonna do when the money's all gone?